Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. You're not that amazing. Why is your self-esteem off the charts? My anxiety, I feel like it's gotten worse. There's an epidemic in mental health. Michael Muthukrishna is a recent PhD recipient from UBC psychology department. He's at the Shaw Tower. Michael, hello. I want to know that bad stuff. What's the worst side of Erica? Are the algorithms shaping our information infrastructure in ways that are not good for us? Follow the people who are making the money. Follow the people who know what they're doing. What was your aha moment? Well, I think the one thing that really convinced me. I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. Most of you will know that I've had some ups and downs with my health this year, but I've made a promise to myself that I want to prioritize my health, and Copilot is making that so much easier for me. Copilot removes all the stress of working out and fits perfectly around my schedule. Here's how it works. When you sign up, you get partnered with your own personal trainer. They make your workout plan for you based on your needs, and they check in with you regularly to make sure that you're on track. And it's all on an app. So wherever you are, you can do your workouts and get encouragement from your trainer. Recently, I got back from a super busy business trip. My trainer noticed I hadn't been as active, so she sent me the sweetest video message to encourage me to do a quick workout. It's an amazing feeling having an accountability partner. That's how great Copilot is. They're invested in you as a person, not just as a user. Copilot is fitness made easy. If you want to kickstart your health, then visit erica.com slash copilot to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com slash copilot, Erica is with a K, to kickstart your health plan with a free trial. I'll put the link in the show notes. So you are an expert in human behavior. And before we got started, we were talking a little about how You've studied self-esteem and you've discovered something quite interesting about it. Yeah, so self-esteem, this is one of the things that I teach in class. So here's the funny thing about learning about humans. You're a human. You think you already understand yourself. So my brother, he's a physicist and he teaches about like particles. And nobody says to him like, you know that thing you said about the electron? 
kind of doesn't fit with my life experience about how electrons behave. But if I tell people something about human behavior, about human psychology, they're checking it against their lives. It's like, is that true? Is that, does that make sense? So some things are intuitive and challenge what people think. And self-esteem is one of those things. So people think that to have high self-esteem, you have to be awesome. And that's not true at all. What self-esteem is, is the gap between your ideal self and your perceived real self. And the larger that gap, the lower your self-esteem, right? So you might know people and you're like, you're not that amazing. Why is your self-esteem off the charts? Like, why? And the reason is because whatever their ideal self is, their real self is pretty much bang on. And so they have incredible self-esteem. Whereas you might know other people, you're like, you are the most talented, beautiful, incredible person I've ever met in my life. And you're still so full of doubt and lacking in self-esteem. Why is that? It's because their ideal self is even higher than wherever their real self actually is. So what does that mean in practical terms? It means that if you want to have high self-esteem, you've got two choices. <laughs> One, you get your real self to that ideal. And maybe that's not realistic. Maybe that's not possible. Or two, you bring your ideal down to reality. You close that gap. You understand yourself better. And you realize that every trait that you possess is not good or bad. It just has different effects on the world. Some of those things, like you might be super confident, super overconfident. And that might seem like a good thing because it, it causes you to take risks, but it causes you to take risks and most of the time they fail and things don't work out for you. So every aspect of yourself has positives and negatives and understanding more about yourself will naturally bring that ideal down to your reality. I think a lot of unhappiness mm -hmm. comes from this gap between what you perceive versus what the reality is. That's correct. And so yeah. in money, we're t we talk about how if your perceived lifestyle, your ideal lifestyle is here, but you, what you're actually living is here, yeah. then you're quite unhappy about your monetary situation. That's exactly right. You know, you, you nailed it. So that insight about unhappiness, dissatisfaction, lack of self-esteem, it's all about that gap. It's always about that gap. So you might... Whatever the amount of money that you're making, if you're spending less and it's enough money for you to do all the things that you enjoy doing, hanging out with your friends, uh, going to some of the places you like going to, buying some of the things that you need, then you're going to be the happiest person in the world, whether you're making you know, 50000 100000 or a million. But you could be miserable at each of those levels if your expectations, reality, and what you want is higher than what, what you're actually making. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the problem probably with social media and seeing people have things that you do not have. Yeah. When they go on the fancy vacations and you don't have that, if you hadn't seen that, you might not realize that that's, that's right. yeah. what you want. Yeah, so there's kind of a, there's an epidemic in mental health that's happened. It took off right about the time that Instagram appeared on the scene. And academics are working hard to try to see, is it actually what, like, is that what happened? Like, we just put girls on Instagram and it just destroyed their mental health, especially girls. We don't know if that's true causally. But in terms of the theory of everyone, this theory of human behavior, that makes absolute sense. So we have a psychology that seeks to learn from the best people and the most socially relevant people. And that psychology is not adapted to a world where the very best are going to be pushed all the way to the top and people are filtering their lives. So you only see the best version of anyone. That creates exactly what you're saying. So people's ideal, what they think that they want in life is totally mismatched to what is actually achievable for them. So it's, it's I mean, it's, it's super harmful. It actually speaks to a much bigger issue, which is one of the things that, that I'm working on right now, which is in the past, if I wanted to find something out, I go to the smartest person in my village. 
I'm like, have you heard? Are the buffalo there or not? And that person would be like, I haven't seen the buffalo. Be like, <laughs> all right, I'm going home then. Or they say they've seen the buffalo. Great. You know, my life was a lot simpler. Now we get our information from social networks created by companies and engineers who know very little about the way that humans socially aggregate all of that information. So a little change that's just A-B tested by an algorithm, is it likes, do I show follower count, all these little changes are hacking our psychology. And sometimes in ways that might keep you engaged, but are actually detrimental to your health. So I have this, I, I got to tell you, I have a, I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, but I have this concern, let's put it that way, that there is an incentive mismatch between dating apps and what you really want. Imagine that I'm an algorithm, like I'm an A-B test algorithm. Do you know what A-B testing yes. is? Yeah. So but explain. So A-B testing is, you know, where you try two different versions of, you know, like a blue website and a red website, which one gets more engagement? I'm going to show you just three pictures or one picture, which one, you know, keeps you on the site. So all apps want engagement, and that includes dating apps. Now, if I'm a blind algorithm, I'm an AI, and my goal is to keep you engaged, do I want to show you the one? Do I want to show you the ideal person? No, you'll be gone. What I want to show you, but do I want to show you crappy people that you're not, no, you wouldn't be here either. So what I want to show you is the almost there. Like I want to show you the people that are almost right for you, but you're going to be back. So I worry that a lot of our world looks like this. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So the, the apps are potentially showing you people that are almost great for you. You'll be out there, but you'll be back. You'll be swiping you know, in no time, which means I've maximized engagement. And I worry a lot of what's happened in terms of social media and the internet are the algorithms shaping our information infrastructure in ways that are not good for us. Instead, what we could be doing is now that we have this kind of theory of everyone, we have for the, the first time in history a, a theory that can explain and predict just about everything about we as individuals and us as societies, we can be much clear about how we design that information infrastructure. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this. Follower account. Pretty much every social media platform shows you follower account. We know from the theory and the evidence, people don't care about number of followers. What they care about is who those followers are. So this is a concept called eigenvector centrality, but you don't need to worry about that. What it means is I care about who those followers are and who their followers are and who their followers are. So let's say you're a high school sports star, right? And you have like 500,000 friends, but they're all other high schoolers. You're actually less influential. You should be less influential. You are less influential to, your, to everyone's psychology than someone with 50,000 followers, but they include presidents, you know, Barack Obama's in there, Elon Musk is in there, you know, the business leaders of the world, the influencers. Those people are all following that person. Maybe it's 50,000 people, but that's what I really care about. That's not exposed to me. Who are you when you say, I really care about that? As a human being, my, I have a psychology that has evolved to not necessarily understand the world, but to selectively seek out information from people who do. And one of the cues that I use is what I call eigenvector centrality. So actually, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, so Page's algorithm, they started Google. The reason that Google, I don't know if you remember in 1998 when Google arrived on the scene. I kind of remember. Maybe vaguely. <laughs> yeah, so you know, before that, there was like AltaVista and Ask Jeeves <laughs> and Dogpile and all these, these websites. And they all worked like this. If I type in, I don't know, banana, and they would look for websites that mention a banana, right? And the more mentions of banana, so people would like create websites that just said banana, 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 and they would rise to the top of these search engines. So Pager's algorithm basically 
basically was like, I am going to solve this eigenvector centrality and I'm going to solve it in an efficient way. That was the real, I don't care about who says banana, banana, banana. Of the websites that say banana, where are they pointing to? And where are those websites pointing to? And they aggregate the, all that pointing and they bubble up those to the top. Mm -hmm. Within a very short time, Google took over everyone. There, there were no other search engines for a very long time. The backlinks. The backlinks, exactly. That's how your, your psychology works the same way. Like evolution has tuned you the same way that Google tuned its search engine, the way Page tuned that search engine, to seek out not just number of people or people saying whatever, but who other people are paying attention to. I'll give you another example, right? I care about hypocrisy and I care about people's reputations and, and I care about whether they're lying to me. Right. So if I give if I give you two pieces of information, right? Or better still, audience, I know two pieces of information about Erica. One of those pieces of information is something wonderful she did. I mean, truly wonderful. No one cares. The other piece of information is something awful she did. You can only pick one of those, right? If you can only pick one, you're gonna want that information. Why? Because people are presenting their best selves. And if you don't have access to people's histories, if you don't have access to their reputational information, their incentives, in the real world, that's what I look for. I look to see, like, what is everybody saying about this person? I, look, I do what in the book I call an incentive audit, right? Scratch under the surface of most people's beliefs. Have you heard the term, you know, it's very difficult to convince a person of something when their salary depends on them believing the opposite? Like, scratch under the surface of most people's beliefs and you will find self-serving ideas, right? Like, people believe things that either get them kudos from their in-groups, right? Often those are the things that are kind of distant from them. Like, do you believe in evolution? What's going on, you know, in Israel and Palestine or Russia and Ukraine? Or, you know, is it a good idea that uh, we're hunting animals? Whatever, all of these things. They're not part of my everyday life. So I just got to be like, what does my group want? That's the thing I'm going to, that's, that's, that's my new profile picture. That's what I'm going to like to make sure that I'm signaling the right things. When you're saying someone will always pick the juicy, gossipy, yeah. bad information, why is that? So it's because there's an asymmetry. So what we care about is, are you a good cooperator? Like, can I rely on you when times are tough? But why wouldn't the good information be just as indicative of if I'm a good cooperator versus the bad information? Great question. So the, the reason is because you are always trying to present your best self. So all of that is just noise in some way. Like, it's, it's all of the information. So the value of a bad piece of information, an evaluated bad piece of information, to know how truly bad it was, what's the worst side of Erica? That is more valuable to me to figure out if I should A, learn from Erica and B, treat her as someone that I can rely on for you know, working on a project together or collaborating on something. I want to know that bad stuff. Uh, that's the reason. There's just this asymmetry. Now online, because you are curating your appearance, right? you only see the good stuff. You never get access to that. So your psychology is seeking it and it's not there. So that's what I mean. Like, you know, that's why things like Instagram are so poisonous to especially, you know, people during the early stage, when young people, because their psychology is seeking it. They're shaping what the world looks like, what their values are, what they should be doing in life. And their social network streams are poisoned by this design that was never really designed. So pre-Instagram, I know the studies are still ongoing and they haven't quite proven that depression has increased because of correct, Instagram. Correct, but yeah. pre-Instagram, where were we gathering that information from? And was it just less curated and that's why it might have been better for us? Yeah, I mean, so in the early stages, there, you know, I mean, in the early social networks, they weren't as large as they are today and they weren't as influential as they are today. And so really what we're talking about is a world before social networks. And then it was much more local information when I had more access. So it would be the popular girl in high school 
I can find out about her because she lives in the community. I know who her mom and dad are. I know what people are talking about. I know the sports she plays. I know lots of information about her. And I can decide she went to, she went to a great college. So I can decide exactly what she did to get there. Now it's not so clear, right? So I'll give you another example of something we care about. We care about what are called uh, costly displays or credibility enhancing displays. So these are things that would be costly if I was wrong about the belief. So let's say I'm popular and I'm like, these supplements are amazing. You should be skeptical. Most supplements don't do anything. And some of them are potentially harmful, you know, like the liver king guy, right? And the other question is, does that person really take them or are they just chilling them? If I see someone who is successful and I see them taking it because they live in my community every day, I see them buying it. That's a reliable source of information. That is missing online. I have no idea whether any, any influencer actually believes the things that they're saying. I have no idea. But what in your mind is the difference between someone in your local community who you see taking it versus an influencer who... The richness of the information. I know more So is it the physical act? So if an influencer had posted, here's me swallowing those pills, would that be the same credibility level? That would increase their credibility. So uh, it's very difficult for doctors to get people to screen for, for cancers, right? Like breast cancer. There's all these campaigns around it. You know, they, they do collaborations with companies to make it happen. One thing happened that led to a massive bump in particularly breast cancer screening. It was Angelina Jolie, right? Saying that she had this and having a, a mastectomy. Went through the roof. Why? Hard to fake signal. Like she actually did it. We know for a fact it happened. Massive costly. Now, if she had done the exact same thing, just she was the face of it, right? She was the celebrity saying it, far less effective. This is why Phil Knight, by the way, was such a genius. Phil Knight, founder of Nike, right? Before that, companies would talk about how amazing their shoes were, how amazing, like this is the best shoe ever. Look at it, what it's made out of, blah, blah, blah. Knight was like, I'm not going to spend the money there. I'm going to, first off, I'm going to like take this to countries where there's lower income and that's where I'm going to make the shoes. That's not where I'm going to invest it. I'm going to sponsor sports stars and have them wearing it when they win. That's a costly display. That is a credibility enhancing display. When I see a sports star winning and they're wearing Nike, I'm going to buy Nike. You can't fake that. You didn't fake that Grand Slam title. I'm going to wear that. I'm going to wear that. And that was the genius of Phil Knight. Now everybody does it, right? But my point is that that psychology is well understood and can be applied in people's everyday lives. That's what I write about in the book. All of these things that can be immediately applied to give you that alpha, that edge. You kind of touched on mental health and how it's declining. My anxiety, I feel like it's gotten worse. And for example, for this podcast, like previous podcast tours I've done, I get so tired at the end of the day that I pass out and I can sleep for eight hours. Something is different this time because even though I've been doing nine hours of filming a day and it's very like, it's very brain intensive to be talking and making sure I'm paying attention. I can only, every night now I go to sleep and I can only sleep six hours because my body is just like at 5 a.m. I'm just like, oh, it's time for the next interviews. What's going on? First off, clinical psychology is a mess. Right? Like we understand our bodies far more than we understand our minds, let alone how to fix them. And, you know, so if you look at the DSM, for example, they're just collections of symptoms. But we do now have a kind of evolutionary understanding for some kinds of things. Anxiety is one of them, right? And depression is another. So this is an area called evolutionary medicine. If you want to read more about it, uh, one of the key figures is, is a guy named Randolph Nessie, Randy Nessie. So what he says is that there are problems that we have evolved to pay attention to and be a little bit more alert about. So imagine that you are a, let's deal with depression. What happens with depression is that you are, you close down, you shut down, you don't want to do anything, you lose all that energy. 
And sometimes it's just a chemical thing and it can be solved that way and you should do that. But in other times, it's to do with things like goal pursuit. If you are trying to catch that animal over and over and over and over again, you're, you're failing. You're wasting energy and you're going to die. You need to go pick some berries or do something else, get the hair, you know, get something a bit easier. And so the depression is kind of functional in that it causes you to stop, reevaluate, do a life audit and figure out where you're going to go next. And you can do that with the help of the community and the help of friends. They, they'll guide you on what you're supposed to do next. And we've lost some of that. And so in the modern world, we don't like we're pursuing things at work, you were pursuing, and we're not, again, it's that mismatch that we opened this whole thing with, which is that the ideal thing that I'm trying to achieve and what my what what I end up actually achieving, it, there's a gap, and that's what creates that depression. Mm. And if I were to reevaluate what I'm trying to achieve then that might be for some people, not all people. Sometimes, as I said, it's just chemical. That might be a way out of that almost depression or depression. Wow. Anxiety is a similar, is another kind of problem that we had to solve. Depression thing, what you said is kind of eye-opening because I realized that sounds very much like me. Like I set such high expectations for myself that I always fall short. Like I always, for the podcast, every single podcast, I walk away and I'm like, oh, I should have asked this question or like, I, was, I sounded ridiculous or... Oh my gosh, I messed up. I mean, you know, it's not it's not uncommon. It's a kind of mindset that means you succeed but are not satisfied. Mm. And it's actually that dissatisfaction that's leading to your success in many ways. Like evolution by the way doesn't want you to be happy. It wants <laughs> No, it's true because it, it wants you to be a little unhappy. If you're happy, you just sit down and do nothing. And then you're unaware of like the dangers around exactly, you. And exactly. Evolution wants you to be a little unhappy because exactly what you said, like so that you're aware of those dangers and you're pursuing the next thing and ensuring that your offspring and you are are, are, are moving to the next step and not going to die in the next minute. So that takes us actually to, to the anxiety thing, right? So in a ancestral environment, we have to be vigilant. So imagine you're a gazelle, right? And a gazelle is going down to this dark at night. The gazelle goes down to the, to the watering hole to have a drink. And it hears a rustle in the bushes. 99 times out of 100, that rustle is just the wind. But one time out of 100, it's a lion and that lion's going to leap on you and kill you. And so what happens to that gazelle? Anxiety goes up, like, you know, cortisol goes up, stress goes up, uh, adrenaline goes up, you know, epinephrine goes up and the gazelle runs. So in the modern world, we kind of have those kinds of moments that are like disconcerting, but we never have the resolution to that, right? Like the world is caught, like there's the next thing, like am I missing that opportunity? What, what's coming next? You know, what, what, and so that creates an anxiety in us, right? Like we're, we're constantly worried about like that could be the lion. In, in our case, it's not actual lions. We managed to get rid of that from our world. It's am I going to miss that amazing business opportunity? Am I not going to grow at the pace that I could have grown? You know, am I not going to make the make it to the top of the list? Am I going to fall off that top of the list that I was once on? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for that's the kind of that's what creates anxiety in the modern world for a lot of, like as I said some for some people it's just chemical, but for for other people that's what's creating it. So again, it's about recognizing what that mismatch is. With your study of human behavior, how do you think it's going to continue to evolve over the next 5-10 years? A lot of the things that we use for cues of learning are themselves learned. And sometimes it takes a generational shift, right? So we we often, you know, have you ever seen for, like forwards from grandma or, you know, a grandpa? Like these, you often wonder, oh, is it that old people or older people are tricked by what seems so obviously fake? That's a scam, grandma. Oh. Like, obviously that's a scam. Look at it. It's got weird fonts and all that, right? That generation of people grew up in a world where if you had a nice typeface, not everyone could do that. To do that, you would have to be the New York Times. And therefore, that's a trustworthy signal. Then the rise of like websites and CSS templates or whatever, everyone could be 
could look like a newspaper. So their cues of what they should pay attention to and their kind of their vigilance around that, if you like, right, was missing. Now, the next generation was aware of that. They grew up in a world where it's like, obviously, Huffington Post can look like, or Breitbart can look like the New York Times, but doesn't mean it's the same thing. But that generation is the grandmas of the future because they haven't yet calibrated to the fact that social media is presenting them with people presenting their best filtered lives and best filtered selves. But the next generation is going to figure that out because that generation is going to grow up, they're going to realize what happened, and they're going to introduce it into schooling systems, they're going to introduce it to the next generation and go, all of that stuff you see online, the AIs can lie to you. Don't believe it just because you, you know, the, the, the smart person said so. That's interesting, right? A lot of that is, that is a lag and it's delivered not only through our, our education systems but our entire societies, right? So do you know what the Flynn effect is? No. Erica? So the Flynn effect is we've been, we've been running IQ tests uh, since you know, the early 20th century. IQ test results have been going up. In other words, all of us are cleverer than several past generations ago. We Literally, all of us are cleverer. The reason that that's happened is because education has gotten better and more people have received an education. And that has also allowed for everything in society to get more complex and complicated. So think of like TV shows, right? Think of like Wham Bam Batman from the 1960s versus like The Dark Knight from the noughties, right? Vast difference. Even the lowest brow television today has more characters, more convoluted plot lines and storylines than ever before. Our brains are capable of much more. That's what's going to happen. We're going to get cleverer. We're going to outcompete what is being presented to us and then the algorithms, social media, internet, and so on, is going to try to it's going to present the next challenge to us. The challenge right now is with AI, by the way. So I don't, have you used ChatGPT? Are you yeah. playing with it? Yeah. So I mean, I use it all the time. It's like integrated into my everyday life. But I got so my my kid, um, he's eight years old, and he had a, he had a question. It was an English question, and I was a little busy at the time, and I was like, "Buddy, I got you. You know, go talk to the AI." So I've been trying to get <laughs> them to do this, but I'm like, "Listen, the AI can lie." The AI just, it lies confidently. And so he's looking this stuff up and, and now he's learning over time to verify. And I show him when the AI lied to him, he was doing some math problem and the AI, yeah, ChatGPT is not quite as good at that. And I was like, look, see, they got it wrong. So that is the kind of training. So I'm doing it with my kid because I study this stuff, but that's going to be in schools. Like, and that hopefully is going to pe make people more vigilant that just because someone is confident doesn't mean that they're actually right. They might be a con man, which is, of course, a confidence man, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, they calibrate for all of that fake information. But we can do it faster. My, the point of the book is that you don't have to wait for society to catch up. You can get there right now. Like, you can apply these insights right now to your own life and the lives of your children to make yourself and your kids more prosperous, cleverer, uh, wealthier, more attractive, and so on. All of these insights are immediately applicable. So tell me what is the one insight that you absolutely want people to take away and apply right now to their lives, their children's lives? What I would start with is the big picture. And the big picture is this, the rise in IQ test scores, the new skills and intelligence that people have was not the result of changes in our hardware. We didn't genetically grow a bigger brain. If anything, actually, by the way, brain size has shrunk over the last 10,000 years. Instead, it was changes in our software. If you want to understand the magic of pivot tables in Excel or how ChatGPT works, don't look in the CPU or the GPU. Don't look in the computer processor in the hardware. You have to understand how the software was written and developed. At the moment, you are a passive recipient where the software is being written for you. Society, schools, social media, the internet, the algorithms, whatever. They're writing your software passively. You're a recipient of it. But if you want to really get clever, 
this little piece of information and become the author of your own software, the coder, the, the, you know, the software engineer, engineering your own software and the software of your children. And that means, for example, being more selective about what you're exposing yourself to, what you're exposing the kids to. It's about more selectively and cleverly seeking out information that's going to enhance your life. So, you know, one example of this uh, uh, is looking for people you disagree with, people who annoy you, but the smartest version of that person. We often strawman the opposition because our goal is to win the argument. Our goal shouldn't be to win the argument. Our goal should be to arrive at the truth. And that means steelmanning the opposition. That means helping the other person create the best version of their argument so that together we arrive at the truth. Those small changes in how we approach information and this information infrastructure around us will allow us to better write that software. And if you get in earlier with your children, you can have a little genius before everyone's a genius. Because if you think about that rising IQ test score, right? If you were doing the things that kids today are doing back in the 1960s, you would be as clever as a kid today. So then maybe take me through how for your children, you're curating the information that they're exposed to. Yeah. Because you don't want to just send them on their phones and say, totally. go yeah. see everything. You want to probably curate it so that they're seeing the right information. That's right. So you know, so I have, I have concerns with the current education system. I think many parents do, actually. And it's not clear that our education systems are preparing our kids for today's world, let alone the world to come. In a world where information, a library of information, much larger than whatever the library of Alexandria might have been, could have, the entire universe of knowledge is literally sitting in a box, like accessible at my fingertips, in a box in my pocket or a computer on my desk. Kids don't need to be like storing that information in their head. They need to learn how to focus in a distracting world. They need to learn how to find that information online and how to discern whether it's true or not. They need to learn what is an authoritative source and how to know, not because it's published in a good place, but because it triangulates with a bigger world model. So that's what I'm teaching the kids, you know? And I do this all the time. So we have, I was just in Estonia last week, and I was there because Estonia is, it has more unicorn companies per capita. It's the highest in the world. And they are the top of the PISA tables outside of a handful of East Asian countries. So higher than the US, higher than the UK, higher than the rest of Europe, Australia, Canada, higher at the top. And they do it while spending less per capita on their students than the OECD average and less than all of those countries that I just mentioned. How do they do that? They did it because they, after the Soviet occupation in 1991, they had an opportunity to rewrite it, to build a better system. So they said, what can we do here? Well, we're a small country. What we're going to do is plagiarize from around the world. We're going to take the best practices from around the world and try to use them. So they looked around the world and they created a school life, which was a teacher collective brain where teachers were incentivized to share information. They allowed their teachers to go out and, and go and see other curricula. They decided to double down on technology and an internet-enabled education system. And they trial new things constantly. So for example, math education, right? Many people, math, Western education systems have let down a lot of people when it comes to math. It's left people feeling like they are either not good at it or that it's not very useful in their lives. And you probably know firsthand that that attitude toward math compared to, say, literacy is, is a Western idea. So, you know, people will often say, like, I'm bad at math. Nobody says, I'm bad at reading. Like, the, the <laughs> attitude toward, like, literacy and math are different, but the, the outcome is the same. If I say I can't read, I'm going to have to have someone read it to me and trust it. If I say I'm bad at math, I'm going to have to have the investment decisions explained to me. I'm going to have to decide, you know, credit cards and things. I'm going to have to have it simplified or talk to someone and have it interpreted for me. And that's not your fault. It's the fault of the education system. 
our education system in math, for some reason, recapitulates history. It teaches you everything. We're going to start with the Greeks. We're going to start, we're going to start with numbers, obviously. So uh, many societies used to count one, two, three, many. Then we got numbers. Then we got zero. Then we got negative numbers. So we get that first. And then for some reason, we go with the Greeks, and we're learning Pythagoras' theorem. Unclear why I'm going to use that. I'm constantly calculating hypotenuse in my life, for sure. And then, you know, and eventually maybe you get to algebra, then calculus. We don't, we actually, this is an interesting fact, we don't learn any 20th century math in high school, let alone 21st century. We're two centuries behind. That's crazy. So another way to do it is to be like, actually, a lot of the way we're teaching this stuff and a lot of the complicated stuff is in the mechanics of it. What you need to understand about calculus is not how to calculate a partial derivative or like chain rules or what, any of the stuff you, if you took calculus. You don't need to know any of that stuff. What you need to know is what is a derivative? What does rate of change mean? What is the integral? A computer is going to do it for you. Later on, you can do it by hand if you really want, but you don't need, my middle school teacher was, he, I remember this vividly. He warned us. He was like, you better get good at mental math. You're not going to carry a calculator in your pocket at all times. He did not foresee <laughs> the are. iPhone, right? <laughs> he did not foresee it. That was a pointless waste of my time. You know, like that was not what I should have been learning back then. It's the same with math education as a whole. The other thing Estonia is doing right now, which, you know, we're, we're trying to see if we can do this with our kids is they've swapped homework and schoolwork. This is a trial, so we don't know if it's going to work or not, but this is what they do. They actively try. They're swapping homework and schoolwork. So what they do is the best educators in the world, I would say you're among them, you know, the best educators are online. The best material, the interactive material is online. So learn that stuff at home. Learn it from the best educators. Then you come to school and the teacher is not the deliverer of knowledge trying to wrangle 20 to 30 kids and deliver it at levels where this person's really struggling and that person, this is too boring, and they end up teaching to the middle. Instead, they're facilitating you practicing those skills. They're helping you find where to access that knowledge online, what kinds of exercises and practices. And if you're good, if your English is at the level of a, uh, a year six, a grade six student, and you're actually in year four, go, go to grade six, work with the other kids. It doesn't happen because the teacher is not delivering it to you. You're getting it delivered at home. You're just practicing it at school. That makes sense. It's flipping the education system. So parents at the moment, unfortunately, until we have those pre-rolled solutions, if you want to give your kid an edge... You need to think about those adjacent possibilities. What can I do? What does the world look like? What does the upcoming world look like? A world of AI helping us think, a world where knowledge is instantly at our fingertips. In that world, what should my kid be getting good at? And some of the things as I, you know, I, I mentioned to you, like they got to focus. Focus is one of the, the things that we are depleted. The people who can focus are going to be the winners. And then the people who can focus on the right things. So those who can discern... Everybody has access to how to code, how to, how to do podcasts, how to do you know, digital video editing. Everyone has access to that today. But knowing how to find the best stuff and knowing who I should be learning from, that's the skill. Name some brilliant business partners who just get it done. Bill Gates and Paul Allen, Hewlett and Packard, Procter and Gamble. What about the perfect partners when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. And they've got you covered with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system for wherever and whatever you're selling. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Erica, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Erica now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Erica. And it's funny because it, I'm sure it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning where it doesn't matter how many followers someone has, it matters who's following that person. Right. So if I find out that Elon Musk and Dr. Michael are sending their kids to this online education school, I'm going to send my kids to that online education school That's too. That's right. So actually, you, you, you hit on one of it. So if you don't want to or don't have the time to do the, you know, the first principles research and figure that stuff out, get good, do the eToro thing. You know, eToro, the, the investing platform. Mm-hmm. Follow the people who are making the money. Follow the people who know what they're doing. But then what you need to do and teach your kids to do is to learn who to follow. Who actually has the information that's relevant, that's up to date? And how do I see past the fact that everybody's confident? Show me the money. You know, show me that this is actually resulting. Or does that make sense to me? Take me through this. You're going to teach your eight-year-old how to figure out what you were saying, whether red wine can be good for you in small yeah. small glasses or if it's just absolutely bad and alcohol is yeah. detrimental to your health. Because I've... I always thought it was kind of good for you, but then I had an expert on the podcast recently come on and say it's absolutely bad for you. You should not have any alcohol. How are you going to teach your eight-year-old how to discern what information is the truth? So the first thing I'm going to teach my, and I do teach my eight-year-old, is to how to make decisions in a world of uncertainty. So in the real world, we don't know. We never know. And we have to decide pros and cons and expected values based on relative probabilities and massive spreads on those. So what I would say to them is, and I guess we do this, what are the benefits outside of health benefits to drinking red wine? And could I get those elsewhere? If So if, if I take this, if I say, you know, like it's, it's good for me or it's bad for me, what are those margins? Can I get those benefits from elsewhere? So here's an example. You know, my colleague Ted Slingerland, he, uh, he has this book called Drunk. And he makes the argument that alcohol serves a social purpose. Remember when I said to you, everybody's trying to present their best selves? Well, if I get you a little bit drunk and we have this conversation, maybe I'm going to get a little bit more truth out of you. So it has a social function in that case, right? And so maybe that's worth it. So maybe drinking in a context where I'm trying to build trust with somebody, I'm trying to build trust with my friends, a potential employer, whatever, that's worth it. So yeah, there's health costs, but the maximum health cost, I need to look at the numbers. Like that maximum health cost is not high enough that occasionally drinking is going to be terrible for me. But binge drinking, probably bad. And why am I binge drinking? Like, what is the purpose of that? That's a more purpose-driven, data-driven life that accepts the fact that most of our world is uncertain. And even when it does feel certain, it could get changed tomorrow. So that's what I'm teaching the kids. You know? Got it. I'm laughing because I'm embarrassed. It's clear that I don't have kids yet because I decided to use an example of like, is red wine good <laughs> yeah. or bad for you for an eight-year-old? Should my eight-year-old be drinking alcohol? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> So are your kids going to normal school? Yeah, so actually, so during the pandemic, we, we had this opportunity during the pandemic. The, the schools were closed, right? And they were providing some material. And so my wife was really, Seth, was, you know, she was the, the real driver of this. And she was like, why don't we just like pick the best curriculum from around the world? Like, who cares, right? So I, you know, I, I, I tell the story in the book. You know, I contacted a friend of mine who'd been doing this for a while. And he was like, oh yeah, Americans, excellent at critical thinking. Here's the textbook. Shanghai and Singapore, fantastic at math. Here's the textbook. You know, English, the Brits are good at that. You're good there. You know, so we remixed this curriculum. Yo, I was blown away at the progress that they were making simply because they switched curricula. Like, just blown away. Wow. So, so you know, I, I gave them, for example, we ended up going with the Shanghai curriculum. The Singapore and Shanghai are quite similar. Slight differences in philosophy. 
the kid was like, you know, I mean, I was good at math in school, but he was doing algebra at a young age simply. Like he was, he was six, he was six, you know, six turning seven. He was doing algebra. And I was like, how did this happen? Like what's going on right now? And it's little things in how it's changed. There are way better curricula for each of these things. It's just that our education systems can't do it at a, at a school entire level. So when the pandemic ended, when we saw this, we were just like, okay, so how do we keep that? Like, I can't let that go. Like, how do we keep this? So we ended up uh, signing them up for an online school, which, you know, it's a, a lot of it is for, um, you know, kids who are athletes or, you know, diplomats, kids, you know, that they're traveling around a lot. Uh, so it only runs from nine till 12, which leaves open a lot of the day. And so then we were like, okay, well, what do we do with the rest of the day? There's clubs, there's activities, the school runs these too. But we were like, okay, but... I also want my kids to like socialize. Like I want them to not be weird. <laughs> like they need to learn how to deal with other people. So they go to they go to a regular school, but it's not so much for the curriculum as it is for interacting with other kids their age. And the online school, we work with them and they they take classes not based on their age, but based on their ability because they're online. And the school itself uses a lot of material. And we supplement that with some of the best practice stuff. And that allows them, because they're in this environment, to just move up and down as necessary. So we've done this. This is like our, this is the new norm for us. That's so but, interesting. Yeah. My husband and I were just talking this week. We've been in London filming the podcast and we were like, British people are so much more eloquent. <laughs> Why is that? Every single British yeah. person we know is like just so good at communication. English are good at English. Could you believe it? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, but I will say, you know, like, so I, I, I teach kids from pretty much every curriculum in the world and I've, I've personally gone through, you know, so many curriculums living in so many different places. The one thing that's missing from the British curriculum is that kind of presentation, you know, that show and tell that you do from a young age in, in other countries. They don't have that here so much. So again, what you're doing is, so I call this process intellectual arbitrage. It's an arbitrage. You're looking for the best stuff and remixing it for you, for your kids, for your family. You don't have to accept the world as it is. This world was made by people not only no smarter than you, but actually not as smart as you because of the Flynn effect. But the fact that your child is doing algebra at age six, isn't that probably because his dad went to Harvard and LSE and all these prestigious schools and is very smart? So a lot of people think that, and the data, by the way, seems to suggest like sometimes, oh, it doesn't matter what school, it's all about the genes. But that data comes from a particular, a particular measure called heritability, so genetic heritability. And you might have heard this, right, that IQ is 50% heritable, for example, or sometimes up to 80% heritable. That is one of the most misunderstood statistics in the world. People think that it means something like, you know, how much is being transmitted from parent to child, let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer because I'm just going to give you the answer. But what do you think the heritability of number of fingers is? Now, if you <laughs> you know if you think it's like parent to child, you'd be like 100 percent, man. Like I got 10 fingers, my kids have 10 fingers. It's close to zero percent. And the reason for that is what heritability actually measures is the amount of like variation. So how many people are doing really well and how many people are doing really poor, and how well that's predicted by the variation in genes. And genes could, those genes could be any kind of thing. So when you see metrics that say, oh, it's 50% or close to 100%, it just means that the cultural environment is very equal. So in the United States, the heritability of IAQ among the wealthy is about 80%. And among the poor, it's about 10 to 30%. How can that be? Mm. Are they genetic? Like, what's going on? The reason is this. The difference between elite school A and elite school B in terms of that cultural and educational input is small. So the only thing left to vary is genes. The difference between like literal school lotteries if you're poor or the neighborhood you grew up in is massive. And so genes are not what's doing the predicting. It's whether you got that educational input, 
right? Wow. If you look at that same heritability data in, in Europe or in Australia, it's no, there's no difference between the rich and poor because the schools are pretty much equal. So what does that mean for you? It means it's not genes. The, the rise in IQ test scores and most of the ways that you think. So we have something, there's an effect called the Stroop effect in psychology. You, probably, you may have seen it online. So what you do is you get people to um, say the color of a word, like what it's written in. Like is it written in red or blue or whatever. But then the word, the word is the color. So for example, it's red, blue, green, orange, and it's either matched whether, you know, the same color, same thing, or it's mismatched. So like red is written in a blue ink and blue is written in black ink. And, you know, and so you, you ask people, don't say the word, say the color. People struggle with that. They can't help but read. Why? Reading has become an instinct. Now, we know that, you and I know the history of reading. Like we know that at some point we didn't have reading and then we did. But if you were a psychologist from Venus who like came down, you're like, oh, it appears that the human animal has genes for reading, it's an innate skill, but do not have color perception. And you'd be wrong. Most of our thinking in psychology looks like that. We have gotten new skills, new ways of thinking. But it's just that if you accept, it's what I said before, right? If you accept the world as it is, if you just passively take that information, then yeah, genes are going to matter a lot. But you are capable of far more we were always capable of achieving super high IQ test results back in the 1950s. Nothing changed. But we weren't doing it because we didn't have the educational input. So what I'm saying is that parents today, you can give your kid an edge and get them to 2050. They can look like the kids in 2050 rather than the, the kids in 2023. So how do we do that? That's the question. Two parents with both high IQs have a kid. If you send that kid to an elite school, private school, Versus if you send that same kid to a public school that doesn't have as good of a curriculum, they're going to have a much higher chance of having a higher IQ. Yeah, that's exactly right. So education is the best predictor that we know of changing IQ. Uh, I can, I can, there's a really nice study. We have a natural experiment. You know, I find this sad, though, because <laughs> yeah. I was always thinking for my kids, yeah. I want to, even though I'm privileged enough now to have the money to send my kids to private school, I wanted to send them to public school because that's what I went through. Like, I didn't want them to turn out to be spoiled brats because they've been, yeah. been in private school their whole lives. But So don't get me wrong, right? It's not that genes don't matter. That's not, that's not the claim here. And, and by the way, not just genes, right? Like the pollution that your kid experiences, whether your mom was smoking, whether you're getting sufficient nutrition, whether you're sick all the time, all of that stuff is going to like damage your brain's hardware. And the genes do matter as well, right? But what matters is how different that public school education is relative to that private school education. Because yeah, if the, if the gap is large, the kid is not going to achieve at quite their high potential if there is a big gap. So that's not the case in all countries, right? In some countries, like you know, parts of Scandinavia, like Sweden or whatever, there isn't a big difference between private and public education. There isn't a big difference. So there, it doesn't matter. And even in the, you know, the hallmark of the United States is compared to every other country in the world? Diversity, inequality. Like massive gaps and differences between you know, states, between different individuals. Like that's the hallmark. Mm -hmm. And so even if you send them to a public school, if you send them to an excellent public school, it's probably going to be fine as good as a private school. But if it's a not so good public school, they will struggle. They won't do as well. But what I'm saying, I guess, is that school itself is kind of broken. And not everyone has time to fix that. But those who do, those who do have the time to kind of think about these things, the tools are out there. You know me, video is an integral part of my business. And the free content I post online, like my popular five-day savings challenge, are all video-based and have allowed me to help millions of people get better with their money. 
So I wanna share with you a tool that I really trust when it comes to hosting my videos online. It's called Wistia, a complete video marketing platform that has intuitive video hosting and creation tools, in-depth analytics, and experts on hand for support and inspiration. Simply upload your videos and take full advantage of a ton of features that take the stress out of video. They've got everything you could need and more. Recording, editing, closed captions so that your videos are more accessible and easier to watch on social media, a brandable video player, and email forms for lead gen. To learn more and try it out, go to wistia.com slash Erica, W-I-S-T-I-A, wistia.com slash Erica, and follow their socials at Wistia. I'll also put a link in the show notes for you. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So let's continue on this theme of I want to have kids that are smart and successful. Taking it back to before they're even born, what should I be doing yeah. to optimize their chances of coming out as great kids? Yeah, so it, it, you know, it is smart and successful, but it's also attractive, right? Like that carries a lot of weight in our world. All of those things are actually tied together. So uh, attractiveness is not arbitrary. We have an evolved psychology that is cueing into signs of fertility and signs of health. You know, I wasn't too many diseases, whatever. If you minimize those things, those are those are good signs. So when you are thinking about having a, a kid, and certainly when you're pregnant, you want to minimize the number of what are called insults, the number of things that can harm that fetus. Right. So that includes, uh, you know, the pollution in your environment. Wear a mask if you're living in a big city and you're going out or something, you know, like a pollution mask. Uh, you want to be avoiding things like cleaning products that you might be inhaling that could be potentially harming that baby as much as you can. Or if you can completely cut out caffeine and cut out, you know, alcohol. Like you want to create like the most pristine environment, especially early in that in that embryo's development. I don't think sugar is so bad, uh, but you don't want to like you don't want it too much. It, it increases really your sad. risk of gestational diabetes and things like that. Okay. And you want to have a healthy diet that includes a wide variety. You want lots of protein because you're you're building a body. Like you're literally like three D printing another human, right? So you want to be you want enough protein, you want enough fat, you want enough vitamins and minerals, and you want to top that up maybe with a uh, with a with a pregnancy multivitamin if you're not getting that up, or perhaps just in case anyway, make sure you got enough folate, things like that. These things are they're well known, right? But from a from an evolution, like I'm not speaking as like a, a medical practitioner, I'm speaking as like an, an evolutionary scientist. Your body wants to create the best human it can. It wants to create a human that is symmetrical 
that is clear skinned, is is resistant to disease, has you know nice hair, all of those things, has a has a good brain, a big brain, and so on. Your body wants to create that, but there's all these things affecting it. In our world today, because we have actually got a lot better nutrition and we've lowered the amount of pollution and lead, lead is another one, by the way. You know, I think a study when we had leaded petrol, it reduced the IQ of about half of Americans. A recent study suggested half of Americans. Crazy, what? huh? Yeah. And so you want to reduce all of those potential insults. Like later on, all of the things, the benzenes, you know, the the you know, the makeup products, like a lot of those things are potential, like especially the aerosol types, like they're harmful. Oh. And so you want to try to minimize as much as you can and try to use might be more not necessarily natural products, but products with fewer number of things you can smell, for example, you know, like radical, like... So perfumes are right now? Well, perfumes are probably okay, but you want to just minimize, you want to, like, that's not the highest damaging stuff, right? It's the cleaning products, it's the pollution, it's the lack of good, uh, good diet and so on. And then as the baby is growing as best you can, try to match what's going on with your child. Right, like if that baby's brain is growing, you want those omega threes in there. You want to be having like fish. You want to be, you know, when the baby's, you know, as the baby's body, make sure you're getting enough protein as you're going. Make sure you're getting lots of good fats. Uh, make sure, you know, maybe seed oil is not so great for you. You want to be in our everyday lives. We always want to strive to be healthy. But when you're pregnant, that's the time to be. And when you're thinking about getting pregnant, that's the time to be extra vigilant about striving for as high as you can go and giving your child the best hardware chance at life. You know, like good hardware, like a good body, a good brain. And, and so then mean, comes the software. <laughs> <laughs> so you mean by exposing yourself to less chemicals yeah. while you're pregnant or about to become pregnant, your baby will be more attractive? What do you mean, what do so, you mean by so, that? So, okay, our cute, so our, what we find attractive are, for men and women, is going to be different. But they are the things that are good for producing offspring for our children. And they're not arbitrary. They're not just made up. Some of them change over time. And I'll give you an example of that in a second. But I'll give you some symmetry, like body symmetry. That is, or facial symmetry, is one of the clearest cues of attractiveness. Now, you might have, by the way, genes do matter. That's what they do with everything. Sometimes, like, kids who are have parents from different places around the world tend to be more attractive because they're mixing, like, genes from other places and they tend to have higher symmetry, right? And tend to be taller, too. But everybody's body wants to create that. And your genes are coding mostly for symmetry. But you're gonna, if you have like an insult early on, it might move a cell a little bit, you know what I mean? And so it's not quite as symmetrical in some part of your body as, as it could have been. Clear skin is another example of this. Like your body wants to produce that collagen and wants to produce as, as nice clear skin as it can to signal health, but also actually be healthy. Uh, you don't want a sterile environment either, by the way. Like you want naturally occurring bacteria to some degree, because you want an immu- the immunity of the child to not be compromised and have higher probabilities of asthma or uh, allergies, which is really your body overreacting because it's not used to anything. Mm-hmm. Right? Hair, like clear, nice hair. If you look at the cues that we use to fake it, like makeup, for example, they're enhancing those things that are that we've evolved. To, like they clear your skin up, they make your eyes bigger and clearer. You know, they uh, they your hair. You make you know make it as luscious as possible. All of these things are they correct asymmetries. That's what we're trying to do. So, you know, uh, men wear uh, broad-shouldered suits, for example, to like fake that kind of big, broad. I'm I'm strong enough to look after those kids. But not everything is, is genetic, by the way, right? So, for example, in the past, having more weight on your body was more attractive than less weight on your body. Why was that? Because in the past, calories were difficult to find. Food was difficult to find. And so if you had extra weight on your body, oh, wow, you know, you're, you're going to be able to produce healthy offspring. You're going to have enough calories to do that. Today, if you, calories are plentiful, too plentiful. 
And so if you're staying healthy and staying fit, it means that you have the time to exercise and you're getting high quality foods. And so now that's more attractive. You know, another example is, you know, in, in, in Western Europe or in, in Europe particularly, uh, being tanned, right? Or being fairer used to be more attractive and now it's kind of being more tanned is, is, is more attractive. Why is that? Well, in the past, what did being fairer skin mean compared to being tanned? You didn't have to work outside. Exactly. You were, work, you were sitting at home and not working out in the fields. What does being tanned today mean versus being fair? You have time to go to the beach. You have time to go to the beach. You're not sitting in an office under fluorescent lights, losing air. You know? So our cultural cues also tap into this. And of course, people fake it with all the well, filters these days, right? Uh, the, the ultimate technological enhancer. But our, those are not arbitrary cues. They're not made up. They're not like somebody decided one day that was going to be attractive. They're cueing into health and fertility of your children, they're, they're, they're for future children. And so what you want to do is create the best possibility for your children to actually have that healthy environment. And then once they're out, you want to change their, their information infrastructure to create the best software to prepare them for the changing world. And that is how we save the future of humanity. We give everyone the best chance to do the best that they can do because that's good for all of us. Because those, those future kids, like betting on those future kids means that we're going to crack the next energy barrier. It means that we're going to reach the next level of energy abundance. We're going to create a fairer world for everybody. What else do you think we find attractive today that we didn't a hundred, a thousand years ago? Well, I mean, fashion styles have also changed a little bit. So wearing white clothing, for example, long ago meant that you, A, you could afford these clean clothes and you could pay someone to keep them clean. It's not so much of a problem anymore, and so now colors are in. Like people wear lots of different colors, not just not just mm. white. But of course, the colors also mattered back then in terms of different fabrics and different patterns, right? Wearing a suit has shifted, right? You know, having to dress up. Like so, once upon a time, it's all about what it cues. So it used to cue that you were wealthy, you could afford a suit. Now it cues, like especially somewhere like Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, it cues that you work in sales. Maybe you know, if you can be casual in your everyday life and you seem successful, that's an even stronger cue because you're not working. You know, like you're, you don't you're working, but you're having a great life. You're working on the thing that you love. You're a more a, you're, you're tapping into people's cues that you should be learned from. You become an influential person, or as we call them today, influencer. What do you think in your study of human behavior and human evolution? What has been the single most eye-opening thing? What was your aha moment? Well, I think the one thing that really convinced me of the importance, so I, there, there are two things. So one, one thing that really convinced me that the cultural input was central to our species was, believe it or not, cooked food. So we have, compared to you know chimps and, and our last common ancestor, we have very short guts, actually. And we have really weak jaws. If anything, we look like a juvenile ape which is a feature called neoteny. By the way, that's another cue that we, uh, we pay attention to, especially for women, like youthful appearance. Uh, because again, it's, uh, it signals fertility, which declines over age. But for humans, all of us look like juvenile. We were children forever. We're kid adults. You know, we, we, we maintain that ability to learn for a long time. But the cooked food thing, the, the weak jaw, and that is very interesting because we don't have, unlike other animals, we require cooked food that unlocks nutrients sufficient to give us the calories we need in a world where those are rare. We don't have instincts for fire. We don't have instincts for cooking. Ask any college student, right? <laughs> they don't have instincts for cooking. And you don't even have instincts for making a fire. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to make a fire without somebody showing you, and even somebody showing you, it's hard. You know, Swedish fire steel or matches. Or, like, it's I've hard watched to make. Survivor, so I know you, it's you know, hard. You, you could totally do it. You could, you know, like, <laughs> it's, it's hard to do. So I'm like, okay, so that means that you're, you are genetically evolved for a world 
that requires cultural input literally in order to survive. And if we were to take humans away from all of that technology, like cut them off from the cultural line, they're not going to survive. Define that cultural input. So if we cut humans off from, so fire has to be taught generation by generation. It cannot be learned. Like if you take a, a child and just put them out in the wilderness, they're not going to learn how to make a fire. Like they can't learn it again from scratch. We live in a world that not even the smartest among us could recreate. Because everything is accumulated generation by generation, and all we do is build on the previous generation. But how does that work then? How did the first person learn how to make the fire? That's the question. So sometimes it's serendipitous, so probably lightning hit a tree or something, and somebody noticed that, and that all the other animals were running away or something, and they noticed that maybe when they cooked some food on there, or they took that fire, and so then they played with it, and maybe they kept an ember alive, and they realized that that ember, many societies do this, they keep an ember alive, and it's you know, and fire has great spiritual significance for this reason. You keep the ember alive and you use it to rebuild fire. Somebody discovered that, but then it had to be transmitted generation by generation. And there are there are lots of record in the anthropological record where that kind of technology gets lost because the elders die, a disease comes through. We're screwed. Everybody's screwed. It's even today, right? Like we forgot how to go to the moon. We're gonna have to recreate some of that. It takes time to do that. We live in a world that's too complicated for even the smartest among us to recreate. And that's kind of scary because we have to keep, when a, when a baby is born, they have to catch up on the last several thousand years of human history. And we're getting more and more efficient at trying to deliver that package. That's what school is. It's like a cultural download. Sit down, kids. We're going to go. Let's go. Phonemes, numbers, you know, da, 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 until you finally get it. And the quicker you can do that, the quicker you can begin to use that knowledge to actually go and affect the world, make money and so on. You asked me, let me go back to the thing you asked me, which is like, what is the most startling thing? The first thing that was startling is, huh, we are a species that can't survive without this transmitted information. So how does it get transmitted? The second thing that was startling to me, and it took me a while to wrap my head, and the data was kind of staring at me, the theory was staring at me, I was like, holy crap, this is true, is the importance of the software. That most of what has happened for human intelligence was never in the hardware. We're overly concerned with the neuroscience of the brain. It was never, yeah, the same computer with the same processor and RAM and all of that stuff without Excel, you know, or Word or your, whatever you happen to use and with it is a completely different computer. And that's where the action has been for humans for the last several thousand years, not in the hardware, but in the software. That software has been evolving over time. Let me give you, let me tell you a study. This is a really, I, I, find, I love the study. It's really funny. Um, 1920s, Alexander Luria, he's a, he's a Russian psychologist. So he goes out to Uzbekistan. And he wants to understand how education is changing people's psychology. One of the questions he asks, and he thinks it's, you know, it's like supposedly not, not a very difficult question. He says, it's called if P then Q reasoning, right? He says, uh, where it snows, the bears are white. It snows in Novaya Zemlya. What color are the bears there? Now, you know the answer. You, if I ask you, you'll say it's white. Uh, if I ask my six-year-old, she'll say it's white. And if you ask the Uzbekistanis with, uh, with education, they were like white. But those who hadn't been to school, they were like, I don't know, brown. Like, what? Like, probably brown. I've seen a brown bear once. I'm like, no, listen to what I'm saying. Where it snows, the bears are white. It snows in Nova Zimlia. What color are the bears? I don't know. Is it black? That's crazy. Like, that is, like, what? We, we have a field site. I, I have a field site in um, the border between Namibia and Angola where there's something called, it's a natural experiment on education. We replicate the results. Like we find the same thing, right? People exposed to education. School has downloaded information into your head and it, you are running that operating system and it changes literally how you think and view the world. You live in a bubble. So we all talk about we live in bubbles, you know, coastal elites or small towns, whatever. We all live in a bigger bubble. Almost everyone you will ever meet has some amount of education. 
And so we don't even know what humans look like. Numbers are another example. We know this from the historical record, reading too, right? People used to count one, two, three, many. Numbers are hard. How did we do that? We used a metaphor, fingers, and then we get the fingers in our head and we just don't need the fingers anymore, or stones. But the thing about stones and fingers is that zero isn't obvious. Zero stones is, there's zero stones on the floor, but there's zero everything else as well, right? So it took centuries after we created a number system to get to zero as a number. And then negative numbers were super hard. To get to negative numbers and make them intuitive, we needed a new metaphor. And that metaphor was a number line, which changed it from objects or, or body parts to movement in place. That new metaphor was a new way to think. It was a software upgrade. It was an update to your operating system. There are updates to the operating system out there in the world, and you can download them. That's the thing. You know, that's humanity's upgrade is coming, but you can get in early for the beta version. You can update it and you can update your kids too. So with all of this that you've found, is it the case that IQs will only continue to rise? Is there ever going to hit a plateau or a cap? Well, in fact, IQ scores in the developed world have plateaued and in some places started to decrease a little bit. So and I think that is, is because our cultural download, our schooling systems have not kept pace. Like we've kind of hit a wall there with the pace at which other things are changing in the world. So I suspect that they can and will go back up again. Or, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to worry, like it's not just IQ, it's literally just how we think about any kind of metric you want. That will go back up again, but once we redesign the way that we download this for kids. And I, I really think that the capacities for AI as a mediator and as a teacher will completely shift all this. I, I suspect it's going to go right back up. Interesting. Yeah. I have a funny IQ story. So all right. my, <laughs> my sister, according to the IQ test, is a genius. And when my mom was telling me, yeah, like, Erica, you've always been lower, but you know what? Don't worry. You've, you've tried harder. Like, <laughs> you've worked harder. So. Yeah. so I'm not the smartest IQ, but I try hard. Yeah. No, so so this, is, this, is what, this is what I was saying. Like, there may actually be a genetic difference. Like, there's some propensities that your sister has that give her a natural advantage over you. These things exist in the world. This is real, right? Terry Tao, you know, like the, the mathematician, uh, John von Neumann, there are people in the world, but they aren't necessarily the people who make the leaps in society. They're not necessarily the people who make the largest contributions in society. You are smart enough. Most of us are smart enough. The edge that you need isn't just working harder. That's one path for sure. Like you can work harder. That's one path, but it's not the only path. The other way to do it is to work smarter than the smart person is working. In other words, it is to actively engage in this kind of intellectual arbitrage, actively seek information, right? It doesn't matter how fast your processor is if it doesn't have the right software. Like, it doesn't matter how good your model is if it doesn't have the right information, if it doesn't have. So you can actively seek that out because you are smart enough. Just about all of us are. So with the IQs, are we all taking the same IQ test that people took 50 years ago, shouldn't those IQ tests evolve as well? Yeah, so I mean, we renorm. So IQ tests went through some very early changes at the beginning. So at the beginning, IQ tests were just designed to see if some kids uh, were struggling in school or not. And it was just a grab, it was invented in France, and it was a grab bag of things that they were like, oh, kids ought to know this, right? Some of them like don't make any sense today. Like, which of these French objects from the early 20th century, which one's which? It's like, you're not going to be able to answer that. So it was culturally specific. When we moved to like adult tests, we realized the cultural specificity. So it became more like abstract things like problem solving math, um, you know, vocabulary, that kind of thing. And that, that's still kind of where we are. Then, you know, in the mid 20th century, people realized, okay, well, not all populations around the world have math and literacy, and clearly those are taught at school. Let's try to make it even more abstract, more culture free. 
So you have other IQ tests, and these all correlate with each other. You know, where you have to solve like puzzles that have like squares and circles, and what's the next pattern? So it's kind of pattern matching. So we ran these studies in our experiments where, so at the border between Namibia and Angola, there are these pastoralist people called the Himba people. You, you might have seen pictures of them. They have red ochre on their skin. They were known for it. Only one side of the border is getting education. The other side isn't, but there's gene and culture flow. So they're the same population, but one side's getting education. When you look at the scores on IQ of the people not going to school, the eight-year-olds are performing the same as the 18-year-olds, flat. But when you look at those going to school, those who receive some education go like this, like it's a small gradient. And those who receive a lot of education go way up, like just like they do in the West. So in other words, like IQ tests are in many ways measuring what schools are delivering. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, in that other population, kids aren't getting cleverer, just not in the ways that are captured by the IQ tests. So yeah, the answer is IQ tests do need to catch up. In fact, all of the ways that we measure have to catch up in our education system. For example, right, our tests are designed for a world where you need to store information in your head. Like once upon a time, the most valuable careers, and to some degree this is still true, meant storing information, like lawyers and doctors or whatever. It was about what was in your head. GPs are Googling things like you are. It's just that they have more information and more ability to interpret what they're seeing. Patients are more well-equipped today than they have ever been, even though that might annoy doctors because sometimes they just get it wrong. And so the tests themselves aren't well-matched to the skills that are required in the present day world. In other words, IQ tests are a product of a particular society at a particular time and what they valued. Now, so some people might say, okay, that's fine, but all of those IQ tests correlate in what's called G or the general intelligence factor. But this would also be true of fitness. So if I gave you a bunch of fitness tests, they would all correlate with each other and you could come up with like F and say, that's your true intelligence F. That doesn't get away from the fact that Different sports are going to require different particular skills. And the level, overall level of fitness is going to be affected by things like nutrition, uh, training regimes, and all of that. Other. That's what, it's the same effect that's happening. That's why IQ tests are going up, health and fitness can go up, all of that input. So at the moment, it is the case that like if you measure IQ in the Western world, it is reliable. Like It stays fairly stable over the lifetime. But that's because we're all receiving a similar education. We're all receiving the same cultural input. And the IQ tests are matched to that. And over time, like they're, they're, kind of, they're quite good predictors of high cognitive work environments. But as those environments change, as is already revealed by the fact that I said high cognitive work environments, as those environments change and AI are more involved and the internet is more involved, then IQ tests in their current form are likely to become less predictive. And we need new measures of human intelligence that acknowledge and capture the fact that it is the software that we're really trying to measure. And that evolves and gets upgraded over time. So can your IQ increase? Because I always thought if you have this IQ at six, it's going to stay the same until you're 18. Yeah, so IQ scores are fairly stable over the lifetime, but that's if you're, if you're just a recipient of information. Like, as I said, a passive recipient, not doing anything different to anyone else. Then yeah, it looks roughly the same, right? But a review of, uh, I think it was 142 studies with over 600,000 participants concluded that the best intervention for raising IQ, like truly raising IQ, is education. And we also have like quasi-experimental data. So in Norway, Norway has mandatory military service, so they measure IQ for it. And there was a change that took place where, depending on when you were born, you, you got two extra years of education. So they increased the amount of education. So you can compare kids who were born, you know, maybe the end of August versus the beginning of September, and there could be a two years of educational difference. Those who receive that extra education in this basically random manner 
because otherwise kids born days apart are not that different to each other, their IQs were about seven points higher. So yeah, you can raise your IQ. It's just that most people don't do the things that raise IQ, which is to this actively seeking out better software upgrades. There are software upgrades out there in the world, but you have to be active in seeking them out and downloading them into your head. And then, yeah, you can get brighter. So can one good teacher in one school year make the difference? And then can that be outdone by a not so good teacher the next year? So, I mean, things accumulate over time and kids have a home environment and they have intrinsic interests. And so it depends on all of those factors. But if the teachers are truly crappy, yeah, you can kill an interest. You can kill their performance. And a teacher who's very good might be able to encourage, uh, you know, and, and help kids actually perform at a higher level than they would otherwise, of course. Yeah. Interesting. But you know, some of the some of the things that one can learn are also what we might call like meta skills. So not just like knowledge, but how to learn. Like how do I learn more efficiently? So some of it is this like background. Like if you learn discrete math, you might find programming easier or something like that, right? But if you know how to use, for example, like Anki, right? The, the software that basically uh, times your learning against the forgetfulness curve. That will help you memorize information. As I tell my students, the best way to learn something is not to memorize it, it is to understand it. And to understand it means being able to explain it to someone else, like explain it to a clever uh, child. That's when you know you truly understand it. And that comes when you triangulate lots of different ways of explaining something. And that, by the way, is the, this is the strength of the Shanghai curriculum. So what they do is they don't do like a, as many Western curricula do where there's a problem and then there's a way of solving that problem and in your head you just have to match the way to the problem. They solve the same problem in multiple different ways. So you, see, you start to see the structure of the problem. You start to see the structure of math. And that changes how you think and how you view the world. You know, it's little things. It's even mindsets, right? Like the, the mere fact that I say you are not born with a fixed IQ that is going to be your life by virtue of whatever your parents gave you. But thanks to especially the internet, you can go out and become clever. And I mean literally, as measured by IQ tests. That alone means you can go out and become clever and you, would, you might try to do that. We've touched on it a bit how you're already exposing your eight-year-old to chat GPT. How do you think AI is going to help you to arbitrage this and help make your kids even smarter? So my, my colleague Carl Bergstrom, who's a, who's a biologist at Washington, he has a really nice way to put it. He said, it seems like AI is capturing the collective unconscious of humanity. We're not even aware of all those possibilities, but AI, by sweeping everything we have produced, all of those images and all of that text, can see it. And so by learning to speak with AI, they can help you recombine and help you find things. They're like a little assistant that hangs out with you. That's definitely a way to kind of arbitrage. It gives you ideas. You can like ask it for ideas and then you can pursue them and you go back and forth with the internet and other more reliable sources back to the... And you can, you can, that's, that's a really powerful way and a lot of people are doing it that way. One of the things that I'm most excited about in terms of AI and you know, where we're going is that at the moment, if you're trying to figure out ways to improve your life, you have to use the average. Like you find studies that say the average person, good, red wine is good for them or it's bad for them, you know? Uh, the average person interacts with food in this way. The average person learns in this manner. The average, the average person is ironically rare. None of us is the average person. The average person is ironically rare. You exist along many dimensions, somewhere in a point in space that is not the, the mean. And so the mean, the average, is not meaningful. AI, for the first time, can help you answer the question of what works for people like me. Here's The more AI learns about you in the way that algorithms learn about you, the more it can tailor advice 
to supercharge your decision-making capabilities. Because now you can make data-driven decisions not based on what's good for everybody or good for the average person, but what's literally good for you given your training and your interests and your prior experience and you know maybe how you performed an IQ test as a child. Given your constellation of traits, what is the path forward to maximize my return on the skills that I have acquired, the skills that I, you know, were given to me and the skills that I continue to acquire in the world. AI can help you do that. And that's, I'm super excited about that. If you were to give my audience a blueprint for this is how you set your kids up to be successful, what is that blueprint? So the blueprint is give them the best chance from the very beginning. Like we all have constraints. Don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Do your best to create a nutritional environment and a health environment, a chemical environment, a pollution-free environment that will result in, in the gestational stage, a baby that is splitting and splitting and growing all of those body parts in the healthiest, most symmetrical, most attractive, most intelligent you know, way that they can. And then once they're out there in the world, think about the kinds of, don't, don't be a passive recipient like everybody else in the world, of that software. Like you're gonna need some of that because you need to coordinate with other people. Like it's nice to have watched the same TV shows as a kid or you know, what, you know, uh, read the same books or gone to, you know, had a, had a high school experience, whatever. Like have those things. But in addition to that, if you wanna try to give your kid that edge, look for the people who have that extra software update, that little patch that you can put on, that new app that you can download to your kid's brain that allows them to see the world in a new way, interact with it, learn better, and try to get some of that stuff in early. You know, some of it is is simply just values, right? So the mere fact that you make education or reading to your kid a, a valued activity, something that is desired by them, you're already setting them up to think, oh, this is an important thing in life. If you set them up to be compassionate human beings who care about the problems that the world has, think about those problems and think about their place in that, you're already setting them up. If you help them think about how they can win for themselves while also winning, creating win-wins, creating a world of positive sum reinforcement in everything that they do, you're setting them up to be the kind of human being we want lots more of. So I say that's the blueprint. What about the most controversial things that you think you're doing with how you're raising your kids? So, you know, it's, it's like I said, whenever you deviate, whenever you try to innovate, you most likely do worse. So you, you know, if you're going to, you want to have some amount of confidence that your deviation is a positive one. And so that's what I meant by intellectual arbitrage, right? And also selecting good models. So you don't have to like, I do this for a living, right? Like my research is on human evolution and human behavior and societal change. That's what I do for a living. So I, I feel comfortable in like figuring that stuff out from first principles. You might not. So find people like read my book, you know, find people who are pushing that and also look around the world at how other cultures around the world are raising their kids. All our, this, you know, it sounds like a boast. I'm not boasting, but like all our kids were out of diapers before they were two years old. And it's not because like I didn't make that up. I didn't invent that. When we, you know, my wife and I, when we, uh, when the kids were born, we started reading how different cultures around the world raise their children. So there were a few things that really stuck. So one, you know, there's a nice book called uh, French Kids Eat Anything. And it's really just about a French culture and French attitude toward food and the way vegetables are introduced and tastes are introduced at an early age to help reduce the kind of aversions that many other cultures have, right? Like reduce salt and that kind of thing. With the, the potty training, right? It wasn't even potty training. It, was, it came from a northern Vietnamese practice where all of their kids are out of diapers at an early age. How does it work? Well, when the kid is like 
when you see the kid peeing or whatever, you, you associate that with a sound. So we, we whistled, which was what the Northern Vietnamese do too. We just whistled at the time. And the kid's like, what the hell's happening? Like, why is mom whistling? Like, why is dad whistling? That's a weird thing, right? So as best you can, and again, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Just try it whenever, the, whenever you see that. What ends up happening is the kid recognizes, like, it's like an alert. It's like, oh, something's happening. Is it around me? Nope, not around me. Oh, it's with me. Oh, I'm peeing. And so they begin to recognize and learn about their own bodies at a very young age. And kids don't like being in a wet nappy. They don't like being in a poopy nappy. And so then as soon as they can communicate, when, they, when they're able to communicate, they communicate like, I can feel it. You remember that thing you told me to pay attention to because you're whistling at me? I can feel it now. Can you take me? And they start to like bug you. So the kids will then, you know, they'll, t they'll say, take, put me on the potty. And that's what happens. So they, they go, okay, 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 here we go. Here we go. And you're going to have accidents and it's not going to be perfect, but don't let perfection, but you'll get there earlier. And, and honestly, we did that because we thought this is better for the kid because the kid doesn't have to deal with rashes and all that stuff. And we just don't like dirty diapers. You know? <laughs> we have three kids and, you know, like all of that. Stuff. If you could, don't do this kind of stuff at, at your expense because you also are a person, you're a human being and you, effectiveness, like being an effective, efficient person, to become an effective, efficient, effective person means looking after yourself and making your life easier. And raising kids whom you, you're not raising children, you're raising adults, you're raising people that you will like one day. So turn them into the kind of person that you would respect and like one day. And then your life will be a lot easier. So, you know, we, we didn't do things like, again, this is, you know, I'm taking credit for really my wife's like, <laughs> input. And so Steph, you know, this is, this is Steph. But she, you know, she never, she never did routines, because A, I travel, we all travel a lot. And so it just didn't work. So we looked at the routine and we said, okay, well, what is it about routines that makes this work? Like, why do kids need a routine? Okay, so it turns out they need cues. They need like structures where something is going to come. So instead of routines, we did cues. So it was like we created, the music's coming on, lights are going out, this is nap time. But we had it so that that could happen at any time. Because when you're bouncing around time zones, you can't do routines mm. and you need to also hang out with your friends to be a human being. And that makes you a richer parent because maybe you're sharing experiences and it makes you more energized and it makes you not hate, you know, what you're, what you, what you have to do. Like child rearing is, you know, what do they say? The, uh, the days are long, but the years are short, right? It's the hardest, most fulfilling work that you will do if you make it fulfilling, but it's always going to be hard. But if you make it fulfilling where you're putting it in, then, then it works really well. Did you discover a way to not have your babies cry as much? Well, I mean... Is there a country that does that well? Well, I mean, I think, you know, like learning when they're crying because they need you and responding to that when they need you reduces the signal to noise, right? Like, so they're alerting you all the time and you, it's, it's a, you're building a relationship with another human being who will one day hopefully be a friend, right? And that means communicating early on. So they're, they only know how to communicate by crying early on. And so it's on you as the older adult, the older human being in this relationship to be like, okay, well, are you crying because like you need something that I can relieve you of? Maybe you, you pooped your diaper, maybe you've got a burp, like, you know, you just have to be burped or maybe you need to sleep, you need milk, whatever, you need food. Respond to their needs. And then at least in our experience, and I think this matches some of the literature, then they're less likely to bother you for other things because they know it's like, oh, Cry and mom's going to be here. Otherwise, I got to constantly cry because you never know. You yeah. know, like get her, get her, uh, or, or dad's going to be there. Like be, be there to be ready for your kid. So, I mean, the crying is not a bad thing. And by the way, like other children's crying, horrible. Your own kid, tolerable, kind of. <laughs> you know, this is your next business, I think. If you ever want a multi, multi-million dollar business, right. it needs to be just, you've done all the work of identifying which 
cultures, countries are the best at right, which right. things like potty train your people. kids and then yeah. package it into an online course. You're the pro at this. What should I package it? It's a course. It's, it's an a online. course. It's yeah, an online right. course. A life course. Yeah. yeah. One of my weaknesses is positive. Remember I said like everything is positive and negative. I'm obsessed with efficiency. Like I have this sense like we're all going to die one day. And I want to I wanna leave the world better than when I found it. And I want to do what as much as I can, right? But efficiency can also mean kind of burning yourself out. Like you don't want that. That's not efficient at all. Mm-hmm. Efficiency also means meta-efficiency. Like it means optimizing, but then knowing how much to optimize so you're not over-optimizing. So, you know, in my life, for example, I look for efficient ways to relax. You know, how do I relax as fast as possible <laughs> so that I'm back at baseline? You know, treating my, myself as, like a, as, a, as an organism and as a machine, right? So I do, I do things like, obviously, you know, like massages are useful, but some things that maybe not everybody does are like float tanks, like isolation chambers. Mm-hmm. So this is like 60 to 90 minutes. Float? Yeah, so it's, it's amazing. Basically, you get, a, you get a pod. It's filled with Epsom salted water, so good magnesium. We know magnesium is mm-hmm. good and it's absorbed through the skin. And you get in this tank and you put earplugs in and it's completely dark. So I'm a little bit claustrophobic. You're not claustrophobic in here because it actually feels like you're in space. So no sound. The, body, the, the water is at body temperature and you're not wearing anything, so you, you can't feel it anything. And you're just kind of floating through space. And because your world is constantly, like my world at least, and, and yours too, and all the listeners, it's constantly input, input, input. Suddenly, silence. No sound, no sight, no touch, silence. So what does your brain start doing? At the, the first time I did it, it started hallucinating. Like I was <laughs> what? like, what am I seeing? Like, what did I take? What's happening right now? You know? So it's like literally it was hallucinating. But after that, you're it's like a cheat code to meditation. Your brain just starts organizing itself. It's like it's happening on like you're not thinking. The thinking is just happening and you're watching it. It just starts organizing itself and it's reorganizing itself and all these patterns are happening. And, and you walk out, you know, 90 minutes is my ideal. Most places have 60, so I, you know, I, I, ideal. I should get one at home to be honest. And you walk out and you're like, I'm good. So when I need to kind of mentally relax, I'll either, if it's like a stress-related thing, I'll do something like that. Aufguss ceremonies, if you've never tried a German Aufguss. So stressing your body is another way to like relax your mind. Okay. So, you know, lifting weights is one thing I do. The other thing, you know, if I am uh, if I have access to like a German sauna ceremony, have you ever, you've never done this? No. So they're in different parts of Europe. You enter like at, uh, it's like 85 Celsius, you know, and uh, so what, it's 145, you know, Fahrenheit. And... They put like scented ice or, or liquids, you know, on, on the stones. And so it's a little bit steamy. And then the, a person comes out and they're waving a towel around, beating this around the room. And so what happens is it, it superheats you for about 12 to 15 minutes and blood just rushes to your brain. You step out, you go into like a warm shower and then into like a cold bath at about four degrees and suddenly it constricts again. And you step out and you're, you're high. It's quick thing, you know, it's like 15, 20 minutes. You will never sleep like you sleep after that. Like you just... What? It's the most relaxing sleep you ever had. So these are quick, efficient ways. But the broader thing is everything in your life can be optimized, but optimization itself also needs to be optimized because you need space for spontaneity. You know, you need to have to, you need, to, <laughs> you need creativity. You need deep workspace. You need time with your family. You need to know how to optimize to being a better parent. This is why I raised this. You know, I need to be, given the 24 hours I have each day, eight hours I need to dedicate to sleep, you know, a few hours I need to do all the other stuff, how do I be the best partner to my spouse? How do I be the best professor, the best you know, consultant and business owner? How do I be the best parent to my children? And how do I be the best citizen I can be of the world? That's, that's really, I mean, that's what, that's what you're trying to do. What part. are some simpler things I can start with to be more efficient? I mean, I don't think <laughs> I can find this 
Yeah, I mean, it depends what you already do, right? So what's your problem? So like, take procrastination, right? Yeah. I procrastinate. Everybody procrastinates. And most people are like, I need to stop procrastinating. No, man, just like, let it flow, right? You are going to procrastinate, but you can decide what you procrastinate on. So you can reduce procrastination a little bit by doing things like uh, the Zygarnik effect. So you leave work unfinished at the end of the day. That bothers you a little bit. And when you come back, you want to finish it. Whereas if you leave it finished, then you got to start up. You got to start up problem. So you never create a startup problem. Like one of the hardest things is starting something, right? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, avoid the startup problem with the Zygarnik Like draft effect. an email, but don't hit send. Yeah, yeah. or half draft the email. <laughs> half draft it where you're like, oh, I know exactly what to say next, but I'm out of here. <laughs> and then you come back, you're like, ah, oh, best wishes, Erica. <laughs> you know, and then you can send that off, right? So the Zygarnik effect. But the other thing is like, I do what's called productive procrastination. I have a list of like crap that it just needs to get done. For some people, like people do this intuitively, by the way, like they clean their house, like, but then they overclean the house because there's nothing else on that list. Whereas if you have other items on that list, like, yeah, I gotta reply these emails, I gotta, you know, I gotta clean the house, I gotta go cook dinner, I gotta, you know, like I can procrastinate on that. I can procrastinate on those items because they do need to get done. But suddenly I'm more efficient because I'm doing things that need to, need to get done just in the procrastination time. And then when I have my deep work time, I'm really getting some serious work done. The other thing that you can optimize is finding out what you love, like finding out what you enjoy. So you know, I don't know if you've ever heard like make, you know, follow your passion and, you know, make that. No, that sucks. That's terrible advice. And the reason for that is because if you're passionate about something and you turn it into your job, that job often involves stuff that's not your passion and it sucks. I went to like, you know, opening week at university, you know, like listening to all this and most of it's crap. Like I don't know if you ever been to this, it's just total crap. But there was one thing that stuck to me and one that was, I'm here to tell you that your career is not your life. What you need to work out is what you love doing, like what you care about, what, and then build your life around it. So maybe you love golf, like you just love being on the course as much as you can. Go be an accountant, go to do a job that allows you to do nine to five and makes enough money that you can be on the golf course the rest of the time. So after that, you know, I was an undergrad at the time. After that, I started thinking about, okay, well, how do I optimize? Like, how do I figure, because I'm obsessed with optimization, right? Or, or efficiency. So I was like, how do I figure out what it is that I love doing? And so I think the answer to that is think about the moments in your life that you were in the flow. Like you had that moment to flow. Like you were, like just, you can, you remember them. Like I was super happy in that moment. Like I was, there was something about that experience that was super fulfilling, and by the way, you know, so my colleague Paul Dolan, he likes to separate things into purpose and pleasure. And the first thing is to figure out where you lie in terms of purpose and pleasure. So if you think about like a, a fully purpose, like that's like a priest. It's like, I don't care about pleasure. It's all purpose, all purpose, baby. You know, and then you got like people that's like, I don't care about purpose. It's all pleasure. You know, it's like I'm diving out of planes. I'm like climbing mountains. All Most of us lie somewhere in between that. And I'm more on the purpose side, but not everyone, you know, is that some people are more on the pleasure side. Like you, you find where you are. And then think about the moments when that is maximized. Like you're really in that flow. And then think about what those moments represent. Like what are they? Who is inside you? You are not a single person. We know this about the brain. You are, you, can you have conversations with yourself? You can because there's multiple yous in there. Some of them are accessible and some of them are not. Who are the people inside you? And how do you feed those people and keep them fulfilled? Because if you don't feed and fulfill some of them, then there'll be a part of your life that's missing. So for me, for example, you know, I, I love when I am in front of, like, I love when I'm in front of an audience and, and I'm talking and explaining things to people. So I get that in my job as a professor. I have students, I give public lectures, I give talks to companies. Like, I enjoy that. Like, I'm in that flow. I'm in that moment, you know? 
I get a lot of pleasure when I am when I see my kids grow and 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 take on new things, and I enjoy that act of being a father. And so I, I create time and space to have that and have that part of myself fulfilled. I love conversations with my wife and I love new experiences where we eat new foods and travel to new places. And so I find space in my life to have that, that novelty, you know, mm-hmm. with her. I enjoy like work, like get, cracking a problem. Like I enjoy figuring things out just for the sake of figuring it out, especially when that's meaningful. And so I do that as a scientist. I'm trying to work out. In this, you know, I, I found a very fulfilling career. I, like I said, I used to be an engineer. That was kind of fulfilling. Like I, at first, I was a software and computer uh, developer. I was working on smart home technologies. And I was like, is this what I want out of my life? Like, do I want to make a, make a bunch of money and then die? No, actually, I don't. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I sure, I, I don't, like, I think people optimize happiness. But what they're really trying to optimize is, well, first off, they're minimizing misery. First step, minimize misery. And I think as a, as a society, we need to minimize misery overall. But then after that, it's more about fulfillment, if that makes sense. And that could be through pleasure and it could be through purpose. But you're figuring out where that is. And for me, it was like, I want to I leave the world a better place. Like I want people to understand how things work. And I want to create in everything that I do win-wins, where I win and you win. Because if, if only the other person wins, you feel like you're being drained of something. And if only you win, that's kind of, it's horrible and it creates... It just creates bad vibes everywhere you go. But if you create a, a situation, like when I hire people, I'm like, what do you want out of life? Like, what do you want out of this position? How do I how do I help you get there? Here's what I want. Is there a match here? Like, can we make both of these things happen to the to the fulfillment of, of both? That's the opposite of compromise, where both people are miserable. It's about optimizing and finding a place where you're both happy. We have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Dr. Michael Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Dr. Michael Taught Me This? Dr. Michael Taught Me that the world was created by people no smarter than I am and probably less smart, and that I am capable of changing the world by changing myself and being cleverer about the software that really governs everything that I do. I can write better software, I can write better mental software for myself, for my children, and in doing so, know exactly what to advocate for and create a better world for all of us. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.